I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Robert Langer, founder of the Langer Labs at MIT, one of the world's largest biomedical engineering labs with $10 million in annual grants and 100 researchers. He's pioneered the fields of tissue engineering and drug delivery, which has led to the development of over 30 companies. He is a father of three children and a magician. Welcome. Thank you very much. Your influence on the biomaterials field is vast, and I'd like to start with the early days of your professional life, because in a way, it helped to inform what you are doing today. After graduating from Cornell, you were a graduate student at MIT, and this was during the 1970s during the energy crisis. How did the energy crisis indirectly lead you to the field of scientific discovery? Sure. There was this gas shortage, you know, all over the country, and the gas shortage in Boston was really bad. So there were all kinds of jobs in the petrochemical oil industry for chemical engineers. They were hiring like crazy. Pretty much uh, my colleagues, my friends, that's what they did. They got jobs in the oil industry, and so I thought that's what I should do too. So I went to uh, a lot of interviews, and I actually I got about 20 job offers from different uh, oil companies, actually four from Exxon alone. But I remember one of them in particular, one of the engineers said to me, you know, if you could just increase the yield of this one chemical by like 0.1%, he said, that would be wonderful. It'd be worth billions of dollars. And I remember flying home to Boston that night thinking to myself, I I just don't want to do that. It just seemed to me, you know, that I could, there were things that I could do with my life that I thought maybe could help people and would be more important, at least to me. So, uh, so I started looking for other other ideas about what I could do. Now, you sent some ideas for a chemistry curriculum to various uh, education institutions. How were they received? One of the things I did when I was a graduate student at MIT is I helped start a school for poor kids and uh, high school, and I got involved in creating new chemistry curricula. And so I remember writing uh, letters, uh, answering different ads to different colleges, uh, to be an assistant professor that would be developing new chemistry curriculum. But none of them wrote me back. So the next thing I thought about, since I wasn't doing so well finding good jobs or finding any jobs where I could do chemistry education, I thought about medicine. So I wrote a lot of, to a lot of hospitals and medical schools, and they, they didn't write me back either. But one day, uh, one of the people in the lab where I was at said to me, said, Bob, there's this surgeon in Boston named Judah Folkman. And he said, sometimes he hires unusual people. He, he thought very highly of Dr. Folkman. I won't say what he thought about me. <gasps> but I wrote to Dr. Folkman, and he was kind enough to offer me a job. And it was <clears throat> your research with Dr. Folkman that had a seminal impact on uh, what you're doing today to some degree. What was it specifically that you were working on? So Dr. Folkman had a theory that if you could stop blood vessels from growing in the body, that that might be a new way to stop cancer someday, a new way to treat cancer someday. But it was a theory, and actually a lot of people didn't agree with that theory. And and, uh, what he asked me to do was to see if I could isolate what would become the first uh, inhibitor of, of angiogenesis, the first inhibitor of blood vessel growth. So that was how, that's how I got started. If you could stop the growth of blood vessels, you could stop the growth of tumors d- developing further. Is that correct? Yeah. The, the thinking was is that, uh, and, and is, that tumors without blood vessels will not go beyond a very tiny size of about one millimeter cubed. 
but if the tumor is permeated by blood vessels, then that solves the nutrition problem from them for them, and they can get much bigger. And then, of course, they can also metastasize or spread through those same blood vessels and set up shop in other parts of the body. You used <clears throat> an eye of a rabbit uh, to help with your research. W- what is special about the eye of a rabbit? Yeah, well, it's it's big, uh, so it's easy to visualize. So, what we thought about was if we could have a plastic, a slow-release polymer that could take anything that was in uh, cartilage, that's what we were studying, and A, not cause harm to the eye, and B, deliver those molecules for a couple months or more, that that might be a way to study how blood vessels would grow or not grow. You mentioned polymers. These are plastics, essentially. The polymers we use would be plastics. Polymers could also be rubber and so forth. Polymer is basically a long-chain substance. We're talking about manufactured tissues, uh, polymers. What was the landscape of biomaterials when you were pioneering this field in the 1970s? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Most biomaterials uh, that uh, people used in the body were largely driven by medical doctors, clinicians. And what they do is they would often go to their house and find an object that would kind of resemble the organ or tissue they wanted to fix. So just to give a few examples, the material in the artificial heart, that was a lady's girdle material because it had a good, you know, good buoyancy or flex life. And the material in a breast implant, uh, that was actually, one of them was actually a mattress stuffing because it was the right squishiness. Uh, the material in a what's called a vascular graft, an artificial blood vessel, that was a surgeon going to a clothes store and finding something they could sew well with. And so almost all of the biomaterials in the 70s had origins like that. They were sort of what I'd call off-the-shelf materials. And that may solve some problems, but it also created problems because they weren't optimally designed for the body. For example, if you take the artificial heart, the lady's girdle material, you put it in the body and sometimes the blood hits the surface of that and it forms a clot. Mm. And that clot could go to the patient's brain and they'd get a stroke and they die. And obviously, there's been problems with different breast implant materials and other things as well. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the chemical engineer, Dr. Robert Langer, who is the chief researcher and founder of the Langer Labs at MIT. He's considered a pioneer in the fields of tissue engineering and drug delivery. In the 1980s, you founded the Langer Lab at MIT. What was the purpose for this lab? My goals were to do things that I thought might someday help and improve people's lives by doing things at the interface of chemical engineering and and medicine. How was it received when you went to the administration at MIT and said, you know, I'd like to form this lab just to facilitate this research that I'm doing? Yeah, well, certainly my early years of doing the research, you know, a number of my senior colleagues didn't think it was very important or didn't think it was very good, and they suggested that I probably should start looking for new jobs. Why was it? Because your field was so nascent, there weren't a lot of... Why was that? I think that that people's idea of what's important probably has a lot to do with what they're doing themselves. And you know, and, and, and they had different areas in this department, but this didn't fit into any of those. And uh, I think the thinking was if I didn't fit into something that, that preexisted, I probably wouldn't get promoted. I probably wouldn't get tenure. Since your research wasn't well received at MIT, did you ever think of maybe moving to an environment that was more friendly to the type of work you were doing? 
Well, I actually think MIT was as friendly as any place. You know, my first nine grants were turned down, and nobody at MIT were on the sections that turned them down. In fact, MIT was, was you know, I still think is a, a great place to be. If you go against the prevailing scientific wisdom, anywhere in the world you're going to run into problems. So how did you break through that conventional uh, bias? Well, I don't know if I really ever did. I just kept doing the work that I thought was important, and I started, you know, publishing it. And, and I think pharmaceutical companies started to notice it. And they said that they were nice enough to say that the work they thought was very important. What were <laughs> some examples of early breakthroughs uh, that helped to lend credibility to what you were doing? So, so we had published this paper in 1976 in Nature, showing that you could deliver molecules of almost any size. So that that was probably the breakthrough, uh, or that was maybe the first breakthrough. But people thought trying to get these molecules, big molecules, through a plastic was kind of like you or I walking through a brick wall. Even though the plastic was porous? Well, people didn't know that then, and we didn't know that then either. So the challenge would be the following. You could either have something that would be non-porous that you couldn't get through at all, or anything that was porous would be kind of like Swiss cheese. So you could get through it, but then you'd get through it almost instantaneously. Mm. And what we were seeing was that we'd have these tiny little particles, and yet the drugs would come out for over 100 days. So the problem would be, how could that happen? And that just defied what I like to say, conventional wisdom. We talk about uh, your your research uh, gaining uh, academic acceptance. What was the first example of the commercialization of one of your um, findings? Well, there, there were a couple, but I think one of the early ones was um, we designed polymers that could uh, dissolve in a certain special way and we what we call surface erosion, kind of like how bar soap dissolves. And what was done in this particular case is it delivers an anti-cancer drug it, it's sort of, it's all all done locally, so the cancer drug doesn't go throughout the whole body. It just uh, is given locally to the to the tumor. And then there was a company uh, originally uh, Nova Pharmaceuticals and later Guilford Pharmaceuticals that licensed it and developed it, and ultimately it led to a product that's still used today, actually in treating brain cancer, called the Gliadel wafer. This is one of the earliest examples of the commercialization of one of your discoveries. Since then, uh, roughly 250 companies have licensed or sub-licensed your, your discoveries. Were you surprised by this torrent of commercial applications for, for what you were doing? Yeah, it's hard to say whether I was surprised or not. I wanted people to use it. You know, when you're in academia and you're a professor, I mean, you're training students, which I love to do, and you're making discoveries and findings, which is also what I like to do. But I also want to see what we do get used. I just don't want it to be a scientific paper that just, you know, people read about. I wanted to see what we did have an impact on people's lives. That's why I got involved in the patenting process, and that's why, you know, I, I wanted to see our things get licensed to companies and ultimately license, you know, create companies ourselves, because if we didn't do that, you know, I find if you're not your own champion, it's very hard to find others who are going to be. Often there's controversy around uh, tech transfer of universities or academics using their discoveries for commercial ends because it leads to potential conflicts of, of interest. What was that landscape like for you? I think MIT, you know, along with Stanford, is probably one of the is the you know top two technology transfer places in uh, in the world. And I think their goal 
is really the same as mine. It's not actually to make money. It's not to, it's, it's really how can we, you know, maximize the chances of products being developed. MIT, which was founded in 1861, uh, one of its missions was to provide and support industrialization of America. So MIT had more of a commercial slant to it than perhaps other academic institutions. Yeah, I think that's right. I think MIT wants to see products created. They want to see things get out to the public. Incidentally, once a, a technology or an innovation is discovered and is profitable, it's split in three ways. A third of the profit goes to the department, a third goes to the university, and a third goes to the inventor. As far as I know, that that's the policy that MIT uses, and, and, and I think a lot of universities follow something close to that. We're talking about the profitability of some of these discoveries, and you turn to the private sector for the funding of some of these companies. Polaris is a venture capital company in Boston that has invested over $200 million in your companies, roughly 20 companies. Um, how did that relationship start? There was a company we that, that I was starting with uh, a woman named Sherry Oberg, and she was uh, wanted to have a company that would create the new imaging agents, and we'd published a paper actually in science that lended itself to doing that. She was a Dartmouth graduate uh, in the business school. She knew a guy named Terry McGuire, and she introduced me to him. And it was probably early 90s, and and she also asked if he was interested in investing in the company, which he did. So we've had a great relationship. I mean, like mm. you said, they've probably done close to 20 companies uh, that we've been involved in. What, what are imaging agents? You said that oh, you developed imaging Yeah, so in this case, let's say you were doing an ultrasound, uh, and for certain things, you can use ultrasound and you know, get a pretty good picture. But for example, if you wanted to see whether you had a heart defect or certain other kinds of vascular abnormality and you tried to use ultrasound, the contrast isn't good enough. So if you could create an ultrasound contrast agent that was good enough, then you could see things by ultrasound imaging that you wouldn't really be able to see otherwise. Or, and you could certainly see it with much, much greater detail. So, for instance, if you're pregnant and you go to get an ultrasound, uh, are some of these imaging agents used in seeing the baby in the placenta? So, in the case of, of looking at a baby, you don't need to, to do that because I think the contrast is good enough. But if you, wanted to look at, at, if you wanted to look at something much smaller, let's say you wanted to look at, at, at I'll, I'll make this up, the baby's uh, toe or something like that, and you wanted to zoom in on it, it might be very hard to see with a regular picture. The contrast agent might be useful for doing that. Mm. By the way, there are—I think there are still hardly any ultrasound agents approved. Mm. Uh, the ultrasound contrast agents approved. I, I expect there, there will be by this or others, but it's a long road to getting approval for for anything. You mentioned that uh, these have not been approved yet, and a firm like Polaris has been very patient. It's patient capital, uh, understanding that they might not see proceeds for decades. That's right. I mean, uh, though they've done very well, as far as I, I, I know from uh, what what I guess people in business call an IRR standpoint. I mean, I think people in the investment business understand that when you're doing medical work, you don't do it on, 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 on the sales at the time. You do it on the promise of the company, and that's turned out to work. I mean, an early company that I was an advisor to for many, many years was, was Genetech, and that came out in the stock market and did fantastic, and they had no products, a lot of promise, but ultimately... They did get products, and those products were were blockbusters. 
Let's talk about the entrepreneurial nature of what you've done. Yeah. You're a pioneer in science. Uh, you, though, you are also a pioneer in tech transfer, in a way, in commercializing a lot of this research. What are some of the hurdles that you've faced entrepreneurially, even outside of you know, the development of your lab in the early days in the 1980s? Yeah, well, I think I think the challenges that you run into when you try to do entrepreneurial things, I mean, one is always raising money, but two is again, some of your colleagues won't think highly of it. You know, they you know, Dr. Folkman actually said it uh, very well once. He actually got one of the earliest industrial grants. Uh, he got about 23 million dollars from Monsanto for his cancer research in the 1970s and he was at a dinner and somebody asked him um, what are the advantages and disadvantages of getting that kind of money? And he said, well, let me do the disadvantages first. He said, there's a gene that a lot of people have um, that's not expressed directly, it's expressed indirectly. And he said that gene is called jealousy. And if you're a young faculty member, that's not such a good thing because people can control your, your future. You know, and then a third thing is anytime you try to create any entity, you're dealing with all kinds of people. I mean, with different personalities. I mean, that's good because they're going to, but somehow they have to come together to create this company and you have to have good business people and good scientists and good uh, clinical people. And sometimes there might be conflicts. And so you have to try to help on those things. Uh, you've you've helped to launch close to, to 30 companies. It's not like you're being Jeff Bezos and you launched one company called Amazon. Here you have sprinkled uh, dozens of companies around in, in your atmosphere. So how do you think about uh, starting a company? Do you just say, well, here's a great idea and hey, you CEO with this specific background, you go run with it, and I'll advise. You're like a godfather to these companies more than in the trenches every day. Yeah, well, I think that that's probably fair. I mean, to me, my major mission still is being a professor and teaching and doing research at MIT and training students. But I also want, when we create something, for it to get out to the public. And, and my students and postdocs, some of them, well, some of them will go into academic positions, uh, some of them want to take their inventions and make a company out of it. And so I, you know, so if we're fortunate enough to A, have made it an important discovery and B, have somebody who wants to run with it, you know, I, I want to help them do that. Incidentally, some of the applications for your research have been in fields other than medicine. One example is in the waste industry. Can you describe that? Well, actually, one of the things that one of our postdocs, Avi Dome, created was something was a polymer, but that would help in what's called flocculation. And what's what, that? what and what that means is if like you have a swimming pool and you have waste or junk in the swimming pool, you know, it could be leaves or it could be you know, dirt, anything, a flocculant is something that makes those things come together. So rather than it be over your entire pool, over your entire surface, it comes together and it's very easy to then remove. Uh, and so there's something that uh, company licensed called Superfloc that, that that's was very, you know, very, very widely used. What are some other tangible uh, technologies that have come out of your lab that we might know of? Well, we've created um, fat substitutes that people have used for foods. Um, What's an example? Like well, what, what product? Like, like for example, hood no fat uh, sour cream or yogurts. Those use those use these products. Hmm. I mean, there are a whole bunch of things like like that. Um, there's a company we've started uh, called Living Proof, uh, which is in the hair care industry, and uh, also Jennifer Aniston is involved in that as well as an investor. Yes, and and so sh so 
there there's products that uh, the company and my students and postdocs and everybody we've uh, and and people the company have created that can prevent frizzy hair that can uh, give hair more body and 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 of course all the medical ones some of the companies that we've been involved in i mean they've created products that uh, can help people with schizophrenia help people with alcoholism help people with diabetes what's an example of an application of your discovery to uh, treatment of alcoholism so the very first company that uh, I got involved starting uh, was a company called Enzatech. And what we did was make little th- – this came out from our early discoveries that we could make microspheres that could release molecules of, a- of any size. We merged that company with our downstairs neighbor, uh, Alchemies. And basically that company um, has uh, created a microsphere that can deliver a drug uh, for a month. It's been shown to greatly reduce uh, alcoholism. So a microsphere being a polymer that, that releases a chemical that inhibits the desire to drink alcohol? That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a, it's a little microsphere that you can inject through a small needle once a month and, uh, and, and, and does, then does just what you said. You can also use that same uh, microsphere to uh, you know, pr- reduce uh, people's reliance on cocaine or narcotics as well. We've talked a lot about polymers and uh, controlled drug delivery uh, to things like tumors. You've also spent uh, a, a good portion of your career on tissue engineering, tissue regeneration. Can you describe w- what that is briefly? Sure. Well, lots of times people have serious medical problems where they don't have, uh, you know, their liver's gone bad or they're burned or all kinds of problems where they don't have a tissue or an organ or it's been seriously damaged. So around 1983, a friend of mine, Jay Vacanti, he's head of pediatric surgery at Mass General. He came to talk to me about this. At that time, he was head of the liver transplant program at Children's Hospital. And we started talking about ways that we might be able to use plastics and, and cells, mammalian cells, to to craft new tissues and organs. And uh, that would uh, eventually lead to new strategies for creating artificial skin for burn victims, um, new ways of, uh, of creating, well, livers or, you know, uh, intestines, because a lot of them are at the research stage. We're also looking at ways of making spine, new spinal cords for people that are paralyzed, vocal cords for people that have difficulty uh, speaking or singing, so all, all kinds of things like that. So what is the tissue made of? Well, the strategy that we use is you have a polymer plastic scaffold, and then you put the cells on it. And over time, the cells make what's called their own extracellular matrix, so all the same proteins, hopefully, and sugars and other things that are in the human body, uh, to begin with, the cells recreate. Hmm. And over time, that plastic scaffold dissolves. It's a dissolvable scaffold that we've designed. So in essence, rather than ladies' girdles or other things, what you're having is what the body normally would have, which are the, what are called these extracellular matrix proteins and, and polysaccharides. So the plastic delivers, it's sort of a platter for this artificial tissue, which flirts with or fraternizes with the real tissue in the body, and they cohere and intermingle and then become their own organism. Yeah, I think that you said it pretty well. Hmm. Um, Each tissue has its own challenges, but that's sort of the general strategy that we've developed. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Dr. Robert Langer, founder and chief researcher of the Langer Labs at MIT. 
Dr. Langer holds over 800 issued or pending patents. 250 companies have licensed or sub-licensed the discoveries originated in his labs. Dr. Langer is a magician. <laughs> I'd like to turn to your personal life. Sure. Um, tell me about this magic. Well, I've always been fascinated by magic. So from time to time, I try to learn how to do tricks. I mean, I remember taking even a magic class and, you know, I would always love going to magic shops and seeing people do do tricks. And I used to do shows when my kids were little. And I remember one time even doing a show at MIT for 400 people. That was a while ago. I, I, I'm probably pretty rusty now. Is there an area of magic that you prefer? Do you like the cards or the body disappearance or what? Yeah, well, actually, I like I like the cards. People have often broken up magic into two kinds of magic, stage magic and close-up magic. Stage magic is like the body disappearing and things like that. But I've, I've always liked the sort of close-up magic with cards or coins, but particularly cards. I've always thought those, those were fascinating. In a way, magic and chemistry or science seem on the face of it very similar. You have something that you know, on the surface is, is wow generating. And your job and your hobby is to understand how to create that wow. You, your job is to understand the reasons for that outcome. I mean, some things could even, you know, appear like magic. Like we just published a paper a week or two ago in science where some of my postdocs found like this uh, this plastic or polymer that can, you put it on your hand and it starts jumping all over the place. And it can even lift things. That's almost magical. And and a lot of what we've ended up doing in the lab is, is understanding better phenomena that uh, is, is, is extremely complicated. How long have you been in, in, interested in magic? Oh, I've been, you know, many, many years since I was a little boy. You grew up in Albany, New York. What did your parents do? Well, my dad ran a, a small liquor store and my uh, mom was a homemaker. Um, Took care of me and my sister. What was your home life like? It was, it was great. I mean, you know, we lived on a small street in Albany. Uh, you know, I had a lot of friends remember playing baseball and football and things like that. And I went to the local public school, 27. It was, it was nice. You're an inventor, essentially. At what point did you think, you know, I'd like to be an inventor or some type of creator or engineer uh, in your childhood? Were those seeds apparent to you that early? They weren't apparent to me that early. But one of the things that I had um, that I got as gifts, uh, there was a company called Gilbert when I was a little boy. And they uh, made all kinds of great things that kids like to play with. I mean, they had this erector set, and they had a whole bunch of different ones of various uh, complexity, you know, where you could build structures like a merry-go-round, another where there was like a parachute jump, another where you could launch rockets. And then they also had a microscope set, and they had a chemistry set. And so I really enjoyed that kind of stuff when I was a little boy, and I... uh, um, even like with the chemistry set, I remember mixing different chemicals together and watching the solutions change color, which mm-hmm. is magic. But also, it was a chemical reaction going on that caused that. But I still, I didn't never thought about inventing it. I just thought it was, it was fun. Would you say that you that you fell into what you're doing accidentally, or was it was it more mindful? Well, I think it's somewhat accidental. I mean. You know, I, I certainly had no grand plan ever. I think the big thing that changed it for me in terms of what I ended up doing was what my postdoctoral work after I graduated from MIT when I went to work for Judah Folkman. And I was like probably one of the few 
chemical engineers in the world, maybe the only one working in a surgery lab. And I started thinking about applying chemical engineering to medicine. And that, that was that certainly changed my life. Dr. Falkman compared research to driving at night. Can you describe that analogy? Yes, that's that's very good. Dr. Falkman said, uh, you know, trying to solve the problem of angiogenesis or some of the other things would be kind of like driving at night. You can only, you can't see past where the headlights go, but you can do the whole trip that way. So in other words, you don't know the answer when you're starting, but you could make steps and those steps would eventually get you there. What are some images that come to your mind when you think of your research? You know, when is this driving at night? What about like crystallization? You know, how they have a formation of a crystal and it becomes like this whole network of crystals. Right, um, right. But that's rock, my own. Who's rock sorry? candy. That's significant. I mean, that that's an example. I mean, certainly one thing that actually we were involved in. Uh, in fact, we started a company on that too was a company called Transform where one of the challenges actually when you make pharmaceuticals is having a good shelf life because you don't want to use a drug. If, if, if the drug after you make it is unstable after a month, you, nobody's going to use it. You're going to ship it all over the world. You need it. And a lot of times you won't use a, a drug for a year or two. So getting the drug in the right crystal form uh, that's in the right stability, that actually is a big deal. If you don't get it in the right crystal form, it may not be stable and then it won't be useful to anybody. Hmm. But if it is in the right crystal form, it can be very stable. You exercise uh, daily. How long have you been exercising and why is it so important to you? Well, I've probably been exercising probably for a lot, probably the last 32 years, 33 years. Uh, it's important. Well, my dad died uh, of a heart attack uh, when he was 61 and, you know, I was 28 at the time. I mean, it, so I, I just you know, want to live as long as I can for my kids and my wife and my family. And What kind of exercise, what do you do for exercise? Well, I uh, use a recumbent bike, uh, um, elliptical machine, treadmill, uh, and, and weights. For how long? Uh, probably two to three hours a day. So two to three hours, that seems uh, above average. I think it's probably quite a bit above average, certainly for somebody my age. But I, um, I'm, I'm able to work while I do it. And uh, my wife and kids actually exercise a lot. And, and, you know, we have this gym at home. So sometimes we're all doing it together, or at least a few of us. And so, um, but I, it is certainly above average. Hmm. You mentioned your wife. Uh, you met your wife at MIT. She's a neuroscientist. H how did you meet? We met on the track. I was running actually outside, and so was she. I knew her, though, a, a little bit because uh, one of the people in our lab was roommates with her, so I knew her a little bit. But then uh, we, so I saw her on the track, and we started talking, and yeah. so uh, that's how that happened. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. My guest has been the chemical engineer, Dr. Robert Langer. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. <laughs>